I invite you to take your Bibles, open it to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. Chapter 15, and we're going to read from verse 40 up until chapter 16, verse 8. And just as a reminder, the structure of this passage is a Mark and Sandwich. Mark begins the story, interrupts his own story with the middle story, and then he continues again with the second, and the middle part is the point. Um, and he's contrasting Joseph with the women here. So notice how he does this. As we read, remember, these are the words of the living God. Let's hear it. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage, and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. When he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. That was the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this beautiful, beautiful gospel that you have given us. Showing us our Savior, the Lord Jesus, his death, his resurrection, and that only in him can we find grace for our, our sins. Thank you, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that you will use uh, this last section of Mark to open our eyes, to understand, to see your grace. Even if it's for the first time, Lord, that we would see it, that we would embrace it, or be reminded of it and walk in it in holiness and in obedience. Please help me, Lord, as I preach. Um, fill me with your Holy Spirit, and I might preach with boldness as you deserve. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, if the original gospel ended in chapter 16, verse 8, notice some of your translations have a big bracket over verse 9, um, going on to verse 20, saying the earliest manuscripts did not have verses 9 to 20. So, if verse 8 is the official ending of Mark, then this is the last sermon on the Gospel of Mark. 
This is going to be the last sermon. But we all still, I'll still do a sermon next week on how to understand verses 9 to 20 and give us a little bit of a history of Bible translation and how we got our Bibles in the first place to help us to understand it biblically. So we're still going to look at that. Um, so I'm guessing you know what my view is, if it's original to Mark or not. But, or you could read between the lines. But, but here we see Mark ending his gospel in another Mark and Sandwich. And he is talking about the women, then Joseph, and then the women again. And the point here is very clear. He's contrasting Joseph with the women. Joseph is faithful. He's bold. He, he steps out in faith, in courage, following Jesus. And the women were fearful and fled and said nothing. They were quiet. So there's a strong contrast between faithfulness versus fearfulness. Faithfulness versus fearfulness. And, and, and Mark is giving that last message to us to say, this is the cost of discipleship. We need to be faithful. We need to follow Christ. We should count the cost that following Jesus is difficult. It is to deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow him. That's a life of dying. And you must be willing to die. But now he, he ends with the failure of the women. And you might wonder, why is Mark so negative? Why is he, why is he focusing on the failure of the women? When the other gospels show us, they did eventually go and tell. They didn't stay silent. So why did Mark end it that way? Well, the, the answer is actually very simple. Mark, the gospel of Mark focuses not just on the failure of the women, but the failure of the disciples in general. It's, it's, you could say it's one of the most negative Gospels regarding the failure of disciples throughout his Gospel. For example, I'll just give you one example to refresh your memory. Mark is the only Gospel that says after Jesus calmed the storm about this in the, after the disciples in Mark 6 verse 51. It says that they got into the boat and that their hearts were hardened because they did not understand the miracle of the loaves. So only Mark says the disciples didn't understand. They were hardened. While the other Gospels have, you know, they, they kind of give grace almost to the, to the disciples. And I think Mark is doing this. He's painting a dark picture for us of, of, the, our, of the, the failure of the disciples. So that we can be honest with our failures as well. Because if you are honest... You relate much more to the failure of disciples than to their successes. Even in the Old Testament, right? How many of you have killed a lion, a bear, and a Goliath? Like, you know, like, we, like, we, we, we uh, relate much more to the Israelites on the side, like being scared to fight this giant. Like, we relate much more to that, if we're honest. But that is not bad news, because it is as we consider our failures that we consider our own shortcomings and our sins, that God's grace is good news for us. That it actually becomes great news that God doesn't treat us according to our sins. He doesn't treat us what our sins deserve. It is when we own up to the fact that just like the 12 disciples, and here, just like the women, we fail. And, that, and in that moment, we rely the most on Christ. We cling to him the most, and we know we need him. We can't do life without him. We need him. So yes, we will look at the failure of the women. And yes, the call is to be faithful like Joseph, to follow Christ no, ma no matter what the cost is. But no, the last word of the gospel is not about failure. It is about God's grace. It is a story of grace, which I will hope to show. And that's why we're going to look at four pictures 
simply going to look at four pictures of God's grace in this last section of the failing of the women. Um, God's grace in spite of our failures. We're going to look at four pictures of God's grace. The first picture of grace we see is the reliable witnesses. The reliable witnesses that God chose to use to testify to the most important historical event of history. Look at verse 40. Let's just look at the women here in verse 40. Um, chapter 15, verse 40. It says, There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. So three women are mentioned. The first woman is Mary Magdalene, which the Bible, other Gospels makes clear that Jesus drove out seven demons from. So already a story of, of grace. But then the second, there's a second Mary uh, in verse 40. So Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger and of Joseph. Who is that? I think this Mary refers to the biological mother of Jesus. Um, now, some disagree about this, but I think we have good reason to believe that this is the mother of Jesus. Um, just look over at chapter 6, just to quickly, so keep your finger in chapter 15, and just turn over to 6 verse 3. Chapter 6 verse 3, it says, the, the people are criticizing Jesus and they say, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? And brother of James and Joseph, there's the, the, the two names are mentioned again. But then it adds, and Judas and Simon. So here we see the same names are used that was used in chapter 15. But someone might say, why didn't Mark add um, Judas and Simon in chapter 15? Well, one explanation is simply that maybe the church didn't know them so as well as the first two. And that's why he left them out. And also the fact that he says, back in chapter 15, he says she was ja um, the mother of James the Younger. So she's the different, uh, the, uh, Mark is differentiating from this James and the Apostle James, the brother of Jesus and the Apostle James. Because the Apostle James' mother is also mentioned in the same verse. That's the third woman. The third woman is Salome, which the other Gospels say is the mother of James and John. Okay, so James the Younger is just a way to differentiate between um, Jesus' mother of James and Salome, the mother of James. I hope that makes sense. If it doesn't, you can, I'll draw a family tree for you afterwards. Okay. But, but that, those three women, and it's amazing that it is incredibly specific. It's as if like, you know, Reinhard from Porch, Mafolo from Boetaville, you know, and they, it's like, and they were the eyewitnesses. Like, the readers of the gospel could have gone to these people and say, I know these people. They were eyewitnesses of what was happening, and they were verifiable facts. And that's one reason why we know the story is true, because it's very specific people that people could have gone and, and, and um, verify the facts. But notice they were not just any witnesses. In verse 41, they were also disciples. Okay, verse 41. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Okay, that's amazing. They followed him from Galilee. Galilee is where Jesus' ministry began. And they followed him until where? Jerusalem, where, where Jesus died. So from the beginning till the end, these women were following Jesus. They saw all of his miracles. They saw his teaching. They saw everything about him. And also, it's amazing in the Gospel of Mark, only angels and women were said to minister to Jesus. That's what the Gospel of Mark, only those two groups were ministering to Jesus. 
Now you might wonder, okay, so why, why is this a picture of grace? Like why, what's so special about women being eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus um, and his life and ministry? Now for us living in the 21st century, we have come a long way in terms of the equality of women and men. Um, since we all created, just to, to lay a little bit of that foundational theology, we are all created in the image of God, male and female. We are equal in value and worth. A man isn't superior to a woman in any way. But that doesn't mean that God has given men and women the same role. Um, we are different. Men and women are different. And God has given a different role to men and women in the family and in the church. But we are completely equal in worth and dignity. So that's the truth. But at the time of what Jesus lived, that was not the case. Women were not treated with equality. Um, for example, a woman's testimony was considered unreliable in court. So if you had a woman testifying, it would just be unreliable. They could do that, but it was, wasn't seen as a reliable witness. And here's another illustration. This one's a bit more radical. A typical Jewish man would pray in the morning like this. Lord, thank you for not making me a heathen. That's a Gentile. A slave or a woman. That's how they pray. They would thank God like that. Thank you for not making me a woman. So now remember, this is the, this is the setting in which the Gospel of Mark is being written. And it says, the women were the eyewitnesses. So if this is a made-up story, you know, drawn from the air, you would never choose women to be the eyewitnesses. You would choose maybe, I don't know, strong man or... But the fact is, who were the first witnesses? What is history? It is women. God chose women to be the first witnesses of the, the resurrection of Christ. And that is as a way to show us the reliability of the resurrection account. That's one proof, one evidence of many that shows us this is a true account. We can believe this account. But it also highlights how God chooses what is despised in the world... To shame the wise. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 26 makes this point. Listen to this. It says, For consider your calling, brothers. Okay, so he's talking to men as well. So men, you are all included. We're all included in this. Not many of you were wise. I mean, look at me. Okay? <laughs> not, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. So just like we saw last week, both Jew and Gentile are to be disciples of Christ. Now we see both male and female are to be disciples of Christ. We are to follow Christ together as one family. So in God's kingdom, men and women are equal. There is now neither Jew nor Gentile, nor slave nor free, nor male nor female, but you are all one in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3 verse 28. And so this is a picture of God's grace. It's not a made up thing. God chose exactly these type of women and these women to, to make a point. This is true. And he saves everybody. God doesn't look at outward appearances. He looks at our hearts. So that's the first picture of grace. God chose reliable witnesses to help us and to, to establish our faith. Number two, the second picture of grace is very obvious. The resurrection of Christ. So the, the reliable witnesses, but 
the climax, the resurrection of Christ. Let's read verse, verses 1 to 3 in chapter 16. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Remember, Jesus was buried in haste because he, was, he died at 3 p.m. and the, the, the Sabbath started at sunset, so he had to be buried in a few hours. So they had no time to anoint his body or to, to, yeah, to, to, to use the spices for his body. So they waited for the Sabbath to pass. They come to the Sunday morning, early Sunday morning, to go and anoint his body. But they were so eager to do this, they realized a very obvious problem. Okay, wait, who's going to roll away this massive stone? Now, that grave was like, the, the stone was like a very, it's a disc, a massive disc-shaped rock, which would take at least a couple of men to, to move it. But the disciples, where, you might ask, where are the disciples? Can't they help? Can't they help them? But the other gospels show us the disciples were scared and hiding. Okay, so we have, so I hope all the, we all feel equal here now. <laughs> okay, but John 20 verse 19, listen, it says that they were hiding in fear for the Jews. It's a sad picture of their failure as well. But also the very fact that they wanted to go and anoint his body shows us that they, as well as the disciples, did not expect the resurrection. They did not expect it. They thought it's over. They thought he's gone. They thought, we thought he was the Messiah, but he's gone. Now we might have to look to somebody else, somewhere else for our hope. But how gloriously wrong they were. Let's read verse 4 and 5. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. So problem solved. The stone was rolled away. Matthew says this man is an angel. An angel rolling the stone away. And I don't think um, the angel rolled the, rolled the stone away for Jesus to get out. I think it was for the women to get in, to see the empty tomb. But this also shows us that the resurrection, the resurrection was completely an act of God. It wasn't something man helped with. And so salvation is not from us. Salvation from start to finish is from God. God gave his son. Jesus gave up his life. He died in our place. He himself rose from the dead. Jesus says, um, I, I, I put my life down and I take it up. So it's one thing you know, to lay your life down, but it's another thing to raise yourself up from the grave. That's what Jesus did. He is God. He raised himself up. The Father raised him up. The Spirit raised him up. The whole Trinity was working at the resurrection. And God gives his Holy Spirit. God forgives us. God reconciles us. God unites us to Christ. God forgives us our sins. Salvation is not from us. It's from God, through God, and for God. All of it. And therefore, who gets all the glory? Not us. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory for our salvation. And that's why we see the resurrection is all from him. And so the angel declares to them the good news of the resurrection. Look at verse 6 to 7. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter 
that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Jesus told this to them before. But contained in their words is a small rebuke as well. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. And the other gospel says it a bit differently. Listen to Luke 24, verse 5. It says, why do you seek the living among the dead? They were seeking a dead Jesus. But that Jesus is no longer available. That one isn't available. Because he's no longer dead. He is now and forever will be the risen Lord. Just to be clear, this was not a spiritual resurrection. Um, liberal theologians and some pastors will believe Jesus rose from the dead, but it wasn't a bodily, it wasn't a physical resurrection. It was a spiritual resurrection. I think just one verse just completely destroys that view. Um, I love how the Bible itself counters some of those. It, it, you can say like, like Jesus, have you not read? <laughs> um, in this case, if you hear that, Luke 24, the end of Luke, Luke makes it crystal clear to make a point that his body was a physical resurrected body. Okay, Listen to Luke 24 verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they saw a spirit. Okay? If it was a spiritual resurrection, then it was just a spirit. And he said to them, but why are you troubled and why do you doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were still disbelieved for joy, were marveling, said to them, have you anything yet to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and ate before them. I love that. Like, hey, by the way, can I eat something as well? <laughs> Spirit doesn't eat. <laughs> okay. And that's why Paul says, this is so important. On this hill, we should be willing to die. Um, Paul says, if Jesus did not raise physically from the dead, our faith is futile. We are wasting our time. We are busy with nothing here. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15 verse 14. If Christ has not been raised... Our preaching is vain. Okay, there, my job, there, my job goes away. Okay, and your faith is in vain. There, your life goes away. Okay, so we both just, okay, it's vanity. No resurrection means no Christianity. There's nothing left. We are just the same as all the other religions if Jesus didn't raise from the dead. We would have no hope in this world, but for what is in this world. We would say, later on in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Let us just enjoy our lives because this life is all we have. But precisely because Jesus has risen from the dead, we have an eternal hope. We have a hope of the life to come. We look beyond this life and know that he will return. We give away our money, our time, our riches because God will reward us with eternal joys, eternal pleasures. So people look at us and think we're stupid. Think like, what are you Christians doing? You're just wasting your lives. And Paul actually says, if we only had hope in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. People should pity us if we only had this life. But that's why it's okay to die as a missionary in the middle of Papua New Guinea, trying to translate the Bible for them. Because there's a resurrection. There's a new heaven and a new earth. 
we will be with the Lord forever. And today you are one day closer to that day than you were yesterday. Beloved, do you have that hope burning in your soul? Do you have that hope of the resurrection? Not just any hope. Do you hold it deeply in your heart that Jesus will raise you from the dead? That you will be with the Lord forever and ever where there is no pain, no suffering, um, no more sickness, on a new heaven and new earth forever and ever? Or are you living more like the women who were seeking a dead Jesus? Are you living as if this life is all there is? So beloved, look up. We are not serving a dead God, but a risen Christ from the tomb. He is alive and well, and at this very moment, seated at the right hand of the Father, praying, interceding for His own. Praying for you, if you belong to Him. And this is the fulfillment of our salvation. The cross was enough. The resurrection is God's amen to what Jesus did on the cross. Amen. It is enough. It is finished. So look at the resurrection. And that is God's grace for you as well. So the reliable witnesses point to God's grace, the resurrection of Christ. And thirdly, third picture of grace is the restoration of Peter. I must say, this is probably my, if, if I have to choose one of my favorite parts of this sermon, it would probably be this one, okay? I hope you've catched it in verse 7. Look at verse 7 again. It's very clear here. Um, the angel says to the woman, go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. You might, why single out Peter? If, he, if the angel just said, go tell the disciples, that would have included Peter, right? So it's redundant. Why is he adding that extra, and Peter, by the way? What's the point? Well, remember what Peter did in chapter 14? When he was under pressure, when he was fearful, he said, let God curse me if I know that man. Let God curse me if I know Jesus. He didn't, he didn't even say the name Jesus. He just says that man. Three times, not once, three times he denied he even knew Jesus completely with cursing and swearing. So you could say of all the disciples, Peter fell the hardest. Of all the disciples, he sinned the greatest. Of all the disciples, he denied the Lord the loudest with cursing and swearing. So of all people who could have thought, it's over for me, I'm done. I've promised that I will never fall and I fall three times in a few hours with cursing and swearing. Surely I should just accept my lot, just accept that I am doomed, I'm, I'm condemned. And so the effect of the angel's words would have been this, go tell the disciples and yes, even you, Peter, that includes you to go to Jesus in Galilee. Peter, God is not done with you. Peter, your sins are not too big. Jesus' love and grace for you is bigger than that. God is still going to use you. Go to Galilee and meet Jesus yet again. It's beautiful. Galilee. That's where Jesus began. 
And in Galilee, that's where he called his disciples. And in Galilee, that's where he restores his disciples as well. And don't you think this is one of the hardest things to believe for yourself as well, if you are aware of your own sin and your shortcomings and even your repetitive sins? Especially after we have fallen ourselves, we easily believe, okay, for, just for this sin, I'm going to just atone for myself. I'm going to work extra hard to cover the sin, get it away so that I can be acceptable again to God. And then I will come. I will first clean up myself and then come to God again. Stop. Stop. You were never saved by works, so don't start. <laughs> don't start. Yes, you need to repent. Yes, you need to make specific plans to not do the same sin again. Yes, you need to pluck out your eye and cut off your hand if it causes you to stumble. Yes, you need to do all of those things. But you, you can come immediately to God whenever you have sinned. You don't have to first whip yourself, punish yourself before you can come to God. Because God does not treat us what our sins deserved. He treated Jesus what our sins deserved. He took the punishment. He took the wrath of God on our behalf. He took your place. And now God treats you what Jesus deserves. His grace, His love, His kindness, and even His discipline. That's also a grace from God. The only requirement is to meet Him again. Go to Galilee. There you will meet Him yet again. Meet Him again. Come again with your failures. Come again with your sins. And He will cleanse you again. Remember our sermon on forgiveness? We should forgive how many times? 70 times 7, which is, um, to say, un unlimited. Jesus says, seven times a day, you should forgive your brother. And why is that? Because that's exactly the same way God forgives us. Unlimited times. 70 times 7, seven times a day. Every morning, His mercy is on you. Every morning. Or to say it like Romans 5.20, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased... Grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. James Edwards commented on this passage. He says, If the word of grace from the resurrected Lord includes a traitor like Peter, readers of the gospel may be assured that it includes those of their community who have also failed Christ. So are your failures big? God's grace is bigger. Are you, are you unable to look at yourself in the eye after you have sinned yet again? Come to Christ. Meet with Christ yet again. Can I just say a word here? As a Christian, our natural inclination is to try to curve or to curb our passions, our sin, with more rules. Okay, from now on, I'm not going to look at my phone from 8 o'clock. 8 o'clock, alarm on, boom. I'm going to install this. I'm going to call five people and I'm going to read five chapters a day. I'm going to pray for so many minutes every morning. And what we're doing is we're trying to change our hearts through more rules. We're adding, we're like taking the law, which is a mirror that shows you how filthy you are, and we're trying to clean our face with the mirror. But the solution, and I'm just saying, sometimes it's wise to have certain boundaries in your life. Okay, so I'm not against that. But don't look to that to change your heart. That's the point I wanted to say. Don't look to rules to change who you are. Only Jesus can do that. Come to Jesus again. Fall before Jesus again. Repent before Jesus again. Meet with Jesus again. He is the solution. Only Christ can, say, can change you. So your problem isn't a lack of rules. It's a lack of love for the Savior. 
So if you want to stop sinning, fuel your, your fire, your love for the Savior, and your love for sin will die. That's what you need to do. But that is God's grace. He restores us 70 times 7. He restored Peter, and therefore he can restore you. And yes, the last and the final picture of God's grace in this story is the reality of failure. The reality of failure. And this is why this ending of the gospel is so kind of shocking, surprising. Verse 8. Look at verse 8. They, the women, went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. So again, if the gospel ended here, that's the end. End of story. It's not, not a happy ending here in Mark. Why? Again, in the Gospel of Mark, we see when people were commanded to be silent, what did people do? <laughs> they spoke. And when people are commanded to speak, they stay silent. So even though initially the women here failed, initially, later we see God's grace was big enough to lead them to repentance as well. But either way, the failure, we, we fail to do what God requires of us. And that's the point Mark wants to emphasize. Failure in God's people is a reality. It's a reality. We see that failure isn't always what you do, but it's also what you do not do. You see, the women were sinning by doing nothing. So some of you might be so paralyzed by an overwhelming sense of guilt, feeling guilty over your sins, over what you haven't done, what you should have done, that, that you just do nothing anymore. Some of you are overwhelmed by the sense of guilt over how you have not spoken out when you were supposed to speak, how you have not loved when you were supposed to love, or how you have not done what you, would have, what you should have done. And we call the sins of omission. So there's sins of commission, like actively disobeying, and there's also sins of omission, not doing the good that we are supposed to do. James 4 verse 17 says, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So sin is much bigger than just lying and stealing and murdering. It's much bigger than that. You could be sinning by sitting in a chair and not doing anything. You could be sinning when you were supposed to stand up and work or stand up and love and stand up and do. Like being lazy, lazy at your work, not doing the work that God has called you. Or in this context, being silent to testify to the gospel when we are commanded to speak for the gospel. And isn't that the biggest reason why we are silent is we are fearful. Like here, yeah, the women were silent because they were overcome by fear. We don't testify, we don't talk about the gospel because we are scared. What will people think of me? What will I lose if I do this? Will, people, will I lose even my reputation as an intelligent person if they find out I believe the Bible and that Jesus rose from the dead? Will people mock me as being narrow-minded and or following a white man's religion? Or and this fear paralyzes us. It, it paralyzes us, but it doesn't have to do that, beloved. Because the hope we have as failing disciples is again, verse 7, to go and meet with Jesus. The angel says, go, and there you will see him. 
The fact that the gospel ends in, in silence almost, imagine if you were the first reader of the gospel and it just ends with the women being silent. And you say, I think they would have at least created a sense of curiosity, like, but wait, did the women, what did the women do after that? What, what, did Jesus meet up with the disciples? Where, where are we now in this story? And almost to go and find out the facts for yourself. I think that's also maybe a reason why the gospel just ends so suddenly, to encourage in us to go deeper, to read more, to look at the other gospels and look at the church, how it's spread. And again, this is the, this is the solution. Um, Jesus overcomes our fear. So we, when we see the full story of what the women did, they did go eventually and talk. And so for us, how do we overcome our fear? By a greater fear. We overcome our fear by fearing God. And let me just give you two promises that's helpful for me when I'm battling with fear. Isaiah 41 verse 10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will help you. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That one promise has been in my mind over and over again. And I'm scared to talk, scared to obey, scared to make a phone call, scared to whatever I need to do. Fear not, for I am with you. And then Psalm 56, verse 3 to 4. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? So what about you? What is scaring you? What are you afraid of? Perhaps you're not scared of people, but perhaps you're just scared in general. Scared of sickness or the pandemic or your future or the economic um, situation of our country or perhaps you're scared to die perhaps you're scared of a loved one dying beloved come to christ and lay down your fears before him he has conquered even death death his grace covers all our sins and his resurrection promises eternal life lay down your fears jesus doesn't promise to take away your fears necessarily but he promises to walk with us in the valley of the shadow of death and to be with us until the end. And when you fail, notice not if, when you fail, then come again to Christ. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are not dead. That even as I'm speaking right now, that you are listening to me and to our hearts. You know our deepest sins, our deepest failures, our deeper insecurities. You know what's keeping us silent when we are supposed to speak. And you know what is causing us to speak when we are supposed to be silent. Father, like Peter, we often deny you through our words, our lives. But thank you that your grace comes to us this afternoon and tells us that we should meet with you. Lord, forgive us for thinking that we can change ourselves through just many more rules or many more laws on top of the already impossible rules that we are trying to, to set for ourselves. But I pray that we would meet with Christ and come to him as the solution to our sins. Father, please, please 
by your Holy Spirit, give us a greater love for Jesus. Give us a greater desire to know him, to make him known. May we see his glory and may we declare his glory to the nations who desperately need the Messiah. Father, thank you for this beautiful gospel. I pray that we would think over the, the words of this gospel, that we would be true disciples of Christ, who is willing to lay down our lives as you have laid down yours for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.